is what's right. And that's actually the epitaph of the book of Judges. It ends that way. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes, not in God's eyes. So why are we reading the book of Judges? Why are we gonna, we're going to preach through the book of Judges for about 20 weeks. We're going to preach through the book about that, by the way. I'm not committing to that. I've just mapped it out now, but as I get into it, I might change it, okay? So uh, about, about 20 weeks, we're going to go through the book of Judges. And, and we're going to unpack the book of Judges because Judges has some very unique things to say to us about ourselves. You see, this is written to God's people who were promised to go in and dominate, to take over the land of Canaan. God had already delivered them. And Judges is written to an already delivered people who God's calling to go in and possess the land that he's delivered them into. There's some parallels there for us. God, we are God's people, if you place your faith in Jesus Christ. And, and God's called us to, he's already delivered us. Now, ultimately, finally, he's delivered us. And yet, he calls us to go in. He calls us to possess the land in a sense. He calls us to obey him, to respond with faith-filled obedience. And yet we see the challenges, the types of challenges that await God's people, that befall God's people. And so we can learn from that instructively. We can also learn that not only are we God's people called into God's land, but we need, we need a leader. We need someone to lead us. We need someone to be faithful. And all throughout the book of Judges is a repeated refrain. You see that judge after judge after judge does not ever really truly satisfy. They don't, they don't really lead God's people faithfully. And God's people all democratize, if you will, and everyone does what's right in their own eyes. And so we need the book of Judges to help us see our own need to see the reality of our human hearts left to ourselves. And also, we need the book of Judges to help us see our need for a Savior. And so we're going to be going through the book of Judges to see something about God and His character and His faithfulness, and then also our need. So turn your Bibles to the book of Judges. As you're doing that, I want to take, draw your attention to a little resource for you. You might have noticed out in the lobby, there's something, this little thing called Judges. These are scripture journals. Um, when I was a kid, I was taught never to write in my Bible um, because it was, you know, a holy book. And so for those of us who still have that hang up, um, we want to provide a resource so that you can take notes, so that you can journal, so you can write down maybe on Sunday mornings, take notes. Um, you can write down how the Lord's affecting you, how he's speaking to you personally through the book of Judges. And then there's blank pages in here. So you're not writing on top of scripture, you're writing in blank pages, okay? So if you would like to take advantage of this, um, and if you're going to use it, and that's the caveat. If you're going to use it, we would love for you to have it. It's out in the lobby for all who would like to use that. Um, if we run out, we will order more. If you're not going to use it, then it's three bucks, okay? So um, it's free. It's free if you're going to use it. It's out there. Um, we would love to have you take advantage of that. It's a great means to be able to take notes as well. So um, turn your Bibles to Judges 1. Um, most of the book of Judges we're going to be reading in larger portions because this is narrative history. It's also theological in its intent, and so it all kind of hangs together in one big portion. So as we do that, I want to uh, just don't get caught up in the little details, but see the picture of what is God saying through each individual account. So let's read it in our Bibles from Judges 1, verses 1 through 2, 5. This is God's holy inspired word for us. 
After the death of Joshua, the people of Israel inquired of the Lord, who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? The Lord said, Judah shall go up. Behold, I have given the land into his hand. And Judah said to Simeon, his brother, come up with me into the territory allotted to me that we may fight against the Canaanites. And I likewise will go with you into the territory allotted to you. So Simeon went with him. Then Judah went up, and the Lord gave the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their hand. And they defeated 10,000 of them at Bezek. And they found Adonai, Bezek, at Bezek, and fought against him and defeated the Canaanites and the Perizzites. Adonai, Bezek fled, but they pursued him and caught him and cut off his thumbs and his big toes. And Adonai, Bezek said, 70 kings with their thumbs and their big toes cut off used to pick up scraps under my table as I have done, so God has repaid me. And they brought him to Jerusalem, and he died there. And the men of Judah fought against Jerusalem and captured it and struck it with the edge of the sword and set the city on fire. And afterward, the men of Judah went down to fight against the Canaanites who lived in the hill country and the Negev and the lowland. And Judah went against the Canaanites who lived in Hebron. Now the name of Hebron was formerly Kiriath Arba, and they defeated Shishai and Ahiman and Talmai. And from there they went against the inhabitants of Debir. The name of Debir was formerly Kiriath Sephir. And Caleb said, he who attacks Kiriath Sephir and captures it, I will give him Achzah, my daughter, for a wife. And Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, captured it, and he gave him Achzah, his daughter, for a wife. When she came to him, she urged him to ask her father for a field. She dismounted from her donkey, and Caleb said to her, What do you want? She said to me, Him, give me a blessing, since you have set me in the land of the Negeb. Give me also springs of water. And Caleb gave her the upper springs and the lower springs. And the descendants of the Kenite, Moses' father-in-law, went up with the people of Judah from the city of Palms into the wilderness of Judah, which lies in the Negeb near Rod. And they went in and settled with the people. Are you still tracking? Okay, keep... And Judah went with Simeon, his brother, and they defeated the Canaanites who inhabited Zephah and devoted it to destruction, so the name of the city was called Hormah. Judah also captured Gaza with his territory, and Ashkelon with his territory, and Ekron with his territory, and the Lord was with Judah. And he took possession of the hill country, but he could not drive out the inhabitants of the plain because they had chariots of iron. And Hebron was given to Caleb. As Moses had said, and he drove out from it the three sons of Anak. But the people of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites who lived in Jerusalem. So the Jebusites have lived with the people of Benjamin in Jerusalem to this day. The house of Joseph also went up against Bethel, and the Lord was with them. And the house of Joseph scouted out Bethel. Now the name of the city was formerly Luz. And the spies saw a man coming out of the city, and they said to him, Please show us the way into the city, and we will deal kindly with you. And he showed them the way into the city, and they struck down the city with the edge of the sword, but they let the man and his family go. And the man went to the land of the Hittites and built a city and called his name Luz. That is his name to this day. Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shean and its villages, or Tanakh and its villages, or the inhabitants of Dor and its villages, or the inhabitants of Iblim and its villages, or the inhabitants of Megiddo and its villages, for the Canaanites persisted in dwelling in that land. When Israel grew strong, they put the Canaanites to forced labor, but did not drive them out completely. And Ephraim did not drive out the Canaanites who lived in Gazir, so the Canaanites lived in Gazir among them. Zebulun did not drive out the inhabitants of Kitron or the inhabitants of Nahalol, and so the Canaanites lived among them, but became subject to forced labor. Asher did not drive out the inhabitants of Akko, or the inhabitants of Sidon, or Alab, or Achzib, or Helba, or Afik, or Rahob. So the Asherites lived among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land, for they did not drive them out. Naphtali 
did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh or the inhabitants of Beth Anah. So they lived among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land. Nevertheless, the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh and Beth Anah became subject to forced labor for them. The Amorites pressed the people of Dan back into the hill country, for they did not allow them to come down to the plain. The Amorites persisted in dwelling in Mount Herez and Ajalon and Shalblim, but the hand of the Lord of the house of Joseph rested heavily on them, and they became subject to forced labor. And the border of the Amorites ran from the ascent of Akrabim from Selah and upward. Now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochum, and he said, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you. And you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. What is this you have done? So now I say, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides, and their gods shall be a snare to you. As soon as the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the people of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and wept. And they called the name of that place Bochim, and they sacrificed there to the Lord. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would help us see what you have to teach us from your word. We can only do that by your spirit. We can only do that empowered by you, enabled by you. Lord, I can only preach as your spirit enables me. Lord, we can only hear as your spirit enables us. So God, we ask for the, your Holy Spirit to be with us, to enable us, to fill us, to open up our minds, to open up our hearts, to open up our ears. May we respond to you this morning in faith. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, about three years ago, a little over three years ago, Right before our family took a trip across the country, we were encouraged to watch an, a movie that was a few years before that. It was, I think it was made 20 years ago probably. It was called RV, and it was a comedy. And um, it, it's a great way to prepare to take an RV trip across the country. Um, and it was a tale of mishaps that the family encountered along the journey. And it began in a foreboding way, but we watched it anyway because we knew the genre. We knew it was a campy family comedy, and so most likely what that meant was it was going to end in some swarmy, kind of sweet, sickly sweet way when everything's going to be resolved nicely and everybody's going to be happy. Somebody's gonna be, there's going to be uncomfortable moments, but people are going to learn lessons, and it's all going to wrap up nicely. And it did, largely. Um, it wasn't a great movie, by the way, but uh, it, it, it wrapped up kind of okay, and everything turns out, and in the end, everybody was happy, and they end up singing. That's not the book of Judges. It's a journey, and it's full of mishaps, but it does not wrap up neatly. It doesn't wrap up nicely. If you've ever read through the book of Judges, it ends badly. This chapter ends with a cliffhanger, and it never gets resolved. And that's actually the whole book of Judges. There you go. You can go home now, right? Um, so what in the world is that for? Why does the book of Judges end like that? You know, it, it begins with so much hopeless, hopefulness. It, it begins um, talking about God's promise to them. Look at the very beginning of the passage in, in verses 1 and 2. It says, after the death of Joshua, and by the way, Joshua was the great victor who brought God's people into the promised land. He was the one who conquered, and then it was up to them to complete the conquest. 
And so he says, the people, after Joshua died, inquired of the Lord, who will go up first for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? And here's what God's promise was. He says, Judah will go up. Behold, here's what he says, I'm not going to give. He says, I have given the land into his hand. So you think, man, that, that begins so hopefully. God's already promised that he's done it. He's given the land into his hand. And, and what Judah has to do is he has to go and fight. He has to go and obey. He has to go in and trust God. And you're like, okay. Well, we, we've seen before in the book of Joshua, that boy, when Joshua trusted in God, God just defeated every enemy. And the people have seen that too. And so it begins with hopefulness. But that's not how the book ends. And that's actually not how our passage ends. Our passage ends with uncertainty. It ends with the God coming to the people and saying, you didn't obey me, you didn't do what I told you to do, you weren't completely faithful, you didn't trust in me, you didn't rely on me, you didn't get rid of these false gods, you didn't obey, and by the way, my promises are dependent on your obedience, and because you didn't obey, I'm now going to make it really hard on you. And the people get sad, they cry, they actually name the place Bokum, which means a place of weeping, and they sacrifice, and then you expect to read the next verse, which you can look down your Bibles. It's got nothing to do with that at all. They sacrifice, and then the story rewinds. And by the way, we're going to go back. The second part of our introduction is next week because there's two introductions in this book. There's two introductions in this book. This is one introduction, and then the next passage, beginning in, in, chapter, in verse 6 of chapter 2, is the second introduction of the book. He gives two backgrounds as to why the whole book looks like this does, and then he gives two conclusions as well and we're, we're going to see some of that next week but instead of the book ending with they sacrificed the lord and then they went and obeyed him no that's how it should have ended it just says they wept and they sacrificed but there was no change and then he rewinds again and tells us a story again from joshua's perspective of right before joshua died and we get another introduction to the book, giving background as to the problems of God's people, the problems that face God's people. And, and one of the first things we see in this chapter, really, which is kind of a summary of, of the book in a sense, this is chapter and the next chapter both kind of point to the same ideas. And what we see is that our repeated faithfulness, if you're reading this as God's people, which is this is how this book is meant to be read. This book is not a book that's meant to be given out evangelistically, Okay. This is not evangelistic treatise. This is not a, uh, to convince you that God exists. No, this is written to God's people, to be read as God's people. So that's by and large, hopefully the majority of people in this room are God's people. You place your faith, your trust in God. And you're to read this book as written to you, as descriptive of, of God's people. And so what we see is this big idea here, not just of this passage, but really of the book, is that, that repeated faithlessness our repeated faithlessness despite God's faithfulness. Because that's what you see. Repeated faithlessness all throughout this chapter. Despite God's faithfulness from the very beginning, it shows a need for a faithful deliverer to lead us into faithfulness. That's what they first ask. Who, who will lead us? Who will, who will lead us up? Who will go up against Canaan? Who will, who will go first? Who will lead? And God says Judah will lead. But then Judah was faithless in the midst of God's promised faithfulness. At the very end, it kind of ends with this cliffhanger 
because we're, we're meant to, to long for a faithful deliverer who will lead us into faithfulness. The Lord says, go up. Judah shall go up. Behold, I've given the land into his hand. And the first reality we see from the passage is that God is faithful. God is faithful. That's, that's, that's the very beginning. God says, I've already done it. I've already given it. God has already fulfilled all of his promises. In the book of Joshua, Joshua tells them at the, at, towards the end of in chapter 23 and 40, he says, you know, God has been faithful to all of his promises. And Judges, by the way, in your Bible, comes right after the book of, Je- of Joshua. And that, that was how originally it was composed as well. Joshua and Judges all together. And they were meant to see that God is always faithful to his promises. And that's how this book begins. God is already saying, Judah's going to go up. Behold, I've already given it to his hand. I've already been faithful. I've not left him alone. And look down at some of the key words in the first half of the chapter. Look in verse 2. He says, um, he says, I have given the land to his hand. Now look at verse 4. He says, and the Lord gave the Canaanites and Perizzites into their hand. He's pointing to God's faithfulness. The Lord, or Yahweh, that's the covenant name of God. And whenever you see the all caps here in the book of Judges, it's referring to that covenant name, a name so holy that they did not write it. Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God, the the one who created all things, the, the one who gave man breath and life, the one who delivered them from Egypt, the one who brought them through the Red Sea, the one who caused every enemy of theirs to fall as Joshua brought them into the land. He says, Yahweh, the Lord, has given. And then verse 4, the Lord gave. And now look down at verse 19. The Lord, Yahweh, was with Judah. Yahweh himself was with Judah. Do you know that Yahweh is with his people? He's always faithful to be with his people. He says, I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. God, the, the covenant-keeping God, he is always faithful to be with his people. And you can see the results. God gave the Canaanites and the Perizzites in the hand. They defeated 10,000 of the Debezek. And, and they missed their great victory, though. There's this little tidbit of, they, they, they didn't kill the king at an Ibizek. They cut off his thumbs and his big toes. They followed after the ways of the nations, and we're going to get to that in a minute. But even in that, he's acknowledging that that is the justice of God. God is just. But the Lord was still with Judah and says that Judah took possession. Look down in your Bibles. The Lord, he says, Judah took possession of the hill country. They fought fiercely. God gave them success after success. The first 18, 19 verses, they really read like this success history. They fought fiercely. God gave them success after success. They've been successful in initially taking Jerusalem. They fought in the country, in the hill country, and then the Gab, which is the desert, by the way. They defeated the Canaanites in Hebron. They, they, it says they took Debir, they took Kiriath Sephir, they took Zephath and Gaza and Ascalon and Ekron. And so if you're familiar with the geography of Israel, they went all around taking all this whole area around Israel. And it seemed there was no stopping their armies because why? God was with them. God had given the land to them. God was faithful. Look at verse 20. It says, and Hebron was given to Caleb. It's the same Caleb, by the way, who's Joshua's buddy. He's probably about 85 by now. Um, but he was still focused on obeying God and driving out the enemy. And Caleb was given Hebron. And he says he drove out the three sons of Anak. And now those were likely, by the way, descendants of Goliath or descendants of giants. 
It doesn't matter who they encounter. It doesn't matter how big the enemy seemed or how big the enemy was. God gave. God was faithful. And then we see in the middle of this account, Caleb having this bold faith in God's faithfulness. Caleb is bold and he says, hey, if anybody takes that city, um, I'll give them my daughter as a prize. And so Othniel, he is motivated and um, he, he goes and he takes the city and we see that he has bold faith. He, he, he sees that, yes, this is worth fighting for. I can trust in God's promises because God is faithful. And so he goes and he conquers the, the city. And then we see Caleb's daughter, this little, I love this little vignette in the middle of the story of, of Caleb's daughter. And she was brave. She was bold. She trusted in God's faithfulness. And she was brave and bold. And she goes and she asks her dad, he says, hey, you gave us the desert Thanks, Dad. Could you give us some springs too? Because the springs had not yet been captured, and yet Caleb's, yeah, you can have the springs because God's faithful, and God, he trusted that God had given him the springs. And it seems the point to be that if the people of the land will be bold, including these bold women, then God will enable them to take the land. And God's promises, they aren't for the timid, but they are for the taking of, for those who will boldly step out in faith, trusting and obeying God. That's true for us today, too. You know, God, God is faithful. It doesn't mean things are going to be easy, but God's promises are there for the taking as we boldly step out in faith and trust in him and trust in his ability, trust in his power. Look down at verse 22. It says, The house of Joseph went up against Bethel, and the Lord was with them. This refrain, the Lord was with them, is pointing us to God's faithfulness. He's not left them. He's with them. He's faithful to give them the land, but it's up to them and how they respond. He's with the house of Joseph, and it's the refrain. As the people go, God will be faithful to them. God's faithful to deliver them. He's faithful to give them the promised land. He's faithful to be with them. And the author is showing that God's faithful. We see another reality the author is showing us is that the God's people are faithless. That's the contrast we see in verse 21 all the way through 36. God's people are, are not faithful. And actually, even earlier, in Judah, he's conquering and, and he's taking over. But did you notice there's one little kind of sticking point in the middle of God's faithfulness in Judah taking the land, it says, but they couldn't take, they couldn't fully take the, the valley because why? It says the chariots were there. They have chariots of iron. They, they didn't trust fully in God's faithfulness. They weren't fully obedient. God promised his people through Joshua to drive the people of Canaan out of the land. And as they trusted in his promises, they need to be careful to cling to the Lord. And actually Joshua said, be careful that you love the Lord your God. And then he explains what that looks like to love the Lord your God. It looks like putting away all these idols. It looks like getting rid of the inhabitants of the land completely so that you're not tainted in any way by their influence. And then he says that they have to be very careful to love the Lord your God. And if not, though, um, if they let a remnant remain, it would be their undoing. If they allowed the inhabitants of the land to remain, it would lead them to idol worship and intermarriage, and they become like the pagan nations. So they've got to be careful to serve the Lord, to love them. And loving the Lord looks like putting away idolatry. Loving the Lord looks like obedience. Loving the Lord looks like not allowing the things of the world to creep into our lives. And Joshua actually made a pledge, and he says, I don't think you're going to do this. And they said, no, we're going to do this. And so he set up this marker stone. And then the whole nation, they came together and says, who's going to lead us? 
God was calling them to fight. They weren't to be passive. They were called to actively get rid of the Canaanites. They had to actually do something. It required effort on their part. Putting out evil, being holy, required work on their part. Now, God was going to ultimately be the one who would make them holy, but they had to respond. They had to work. They had to do something. They had a part to play. They weren't to be passive. God called them to inherit the promised land. In order to do that, they had to actively obey and fully trust in God. For us today, we, we have a part to play in our own sanctification, our own holiness. Yes, God is the one who sanctifies us. He is the one who's already made us apart. He's already set us apart. He's already made us holy. But then he calls us to live holy lives. Yes, he's already made us clean, but he still calls us to obey him, to fight the good fight. He's given us all his great and glorious promises, but then to receive them, we're, we're to actively pursue and trust in his promises and faithfully obey him. Our calling is to trust his promises and his power and to step out in faith and fight. Philippians 2 talks about some of this battle that we have. Philippians 2.12 says, Therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, so now, not only is it my presence, but much more my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it's God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. But just like the people of Israel, sometimes we fail, don't we? They encountered this seemingly undefeatable enemy in the valley who had chariots. And so they said, we can't do it. They gave up. They didn't, they didn't drive them out because they had chariots. Now, God had said he'd already given it to them. So that wasn't God's testimony that they, they were unable. That was their testimony, that they were unable to drive them out because the challenge was too hard. Sometimes the challenge seems too hard for us, doesn't it? The enemy's too great, the sin too pernicious. Judah gave up. What it doesn't say is that Judah continued to fight to the bitter end. It doesn't say that Judah cried out to God, that Judah sought the Lord, that, that Judah asked God to help him. Nope, they saw the chariots and they stopped. They couldn't. This kind of reminds me of the story of Peter in, in the New Testament and when Peter sees Jesus walking on the water in the midst of a storm and, and Peter sees that and he calls out to Jesus and he says in, in, in Matthew 14, 28 says, Lord, if it's you, command me to come to you on the water. And so he said, come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. When he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. And Jesus immediately reached out his hand, took hold of him, saying, oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? It's the same challenge that Judah had. It's the same challenge that Peter has. the same challenge that we have. When we see enemies that seem too big for us, seem too challenging for us, what will our response be? Will we have faith or will we doubt? Often the problem for God's people is when God calls us to do something that seems impossible and might be impossible on our own, we can tend to give up, forgetting that nothing is impossible for Yahweh. God expected him to rely on his promises and fight. Jesus actually expected Peter to be of greater faith, to not doubt. Where do you struggle to believe? Where do you give up? When God said sin won't be your master, do you really believe that? When he said he's already given you victory over sin, do you, do you believe that in your own life? When he says that my grace is sufficient for you in weakness, do you believe that? 
chapter twenty, chapter verses twenty-one thirty-six are just this litany of failures to obey faithfully and completely. Judah took Jerusalem, and then the people of Benjamin were to go in and finish the job. It says Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites. And the result was ominous. Look down in, in verse 21. It says, the Jebusites, so the Jebusites have lived with the people of Benjamin to this day. That, that is a warning. If you, allow, if you allow God's enemies to remain in your life, it's going to cause problems. And this is foreboding in the book, and there it continues all throughout the book of Judges. Look down at verse 22 to 26, the spies, they go into the city. And what do they do? Did they, did they, did they say, okay, great, Lord, we, we see this, and we're going to trust in you, we're going to conquer? No, they started to make deals. They made a deal with an inhabitant of the city and struck with the sword. It doesn't say they sought the Lord, God told them to do that. Instead, depending on God who was with them, they depended on a foreign spy, they depended on their own means. They looked for the quickest and easiest way to take the city. Sometimes we, we do the same. We look for the quickest and easiest way to do things. They compromise, they use underhand worldly means of cutting a deal. It says they let his man and all his family go, but what were they told to do? They were told to completely remove them, to get rid of them, to not allow any of them to survive because it was God's judgment on, on a nation that was even more unholy than they were. It says he goes and builds another city named Luz and it's still standing to this day when the author wrote that. You know, if you, uh, we, when we planted a garden this year, Every year we try to plant a garden with varying measures of success. Um, the tomatoes took off this year. They were great. We planted a bunch of herbs in another plot beside us, and um, we got busy. Uh, we had tons of stuff to do. We went to travel to a vacation for a couple of weeks. We went to the Dominican Republic. I went to California. In the midst of all those things, weeds grew up, and there's no herbs. None at all. And because we left the, those weeds, they choked out the plants. It's like us sparing the flesh and, and, and being okay, being ambivalent to those weeds that remain in our lives when God says, be holy for I am holy. And that's a New Testament command too, by the way. And yet we fail to deal forcefully with our sin. You know, Jesus was so concerned about our sins. He says, if, if your right hand calls you sin, cut it off. If your eye calls you sin, pluck it out. Now, he was being metaphorically, do not do that physically. But what he's talking about is the extreme measure we need to deal with our sin because God called us to be holy and that's a call for us today. And you think that God's not concerned with holiness? Well, he really is. We'll see that in a minute. Even after it says in, in verse in, in 28, it says, when Israel grew strong. Don't you know Bible? When Israel grew strong, they still didn't drive out the Canaanites. They made them their slaves. They, they let them live and work amongst them. They compromised. Why? Because they were greedy. They were, they were doing the most expedient thing. And here's the thing. Israel was successful. They grew strong. They were successful. But they caved. They took the easier path. They didn't completely remove the cancer from among them. It would be like finding out you have a cancerous tumor and saying, okay, doc, just take out part of it. I'm cool with the rest. Nobody would do that. You can't just remove part of the cancer. Pragmatic success, but spiritual failure is not success. Earthly or worldly success, they, they, were, they were successful, they became strong, but that wasn't a measure of pleasing God. Just like seeing someone on earth and their, their earthly success, or maybe you're a Christian and you're thinking, hey, I'm, I'm making all this money, I'm doing all these great things, I have all this success in my life and my family's doing all these great things. Well, don't, don't assume that that means that you're pleasing to God. The Lord was of the tribe of Joseph. They allowed the Amorites to stay. And then we see account after account 
of the northern tribes compromising, not driving out the inhabitants, and it says they became a thorn in their side. And later the people of Israel, in the, in the book of Judges, they're going to be tempted to give into idolatry because of the very people that they allowed to remain. And that's true for us too. As we, as we, as we let those little things in our life that God brings to mind, when, when God brings up those areas we need to change, be more like him, when we let those things remain, they're going to grow like weeds and they're going to be a struggle for us. And we see that really in the midst of God's faithfulness, the very beginning, God's people are faithless, and that's a problem. It's a problem because God's covenant, it depends on complete faithfulness. God's covenant depends on complete obedience. Completely removing the evil from amongst their midst, breaking down the altars, and allowing no other God than the one true God. And that's really the third thing we see in verses 1 through 5 of chapter 2. It says that God requires his people's faithfulness. God's faithful. The people are faithless, and that's a problem because God requires his people's faithfulness. And God reminds them of this. Look at 2 verse 1. He says, he says the angel of the Lord is reminding them of his faithfulness. He says, I brought you up. I brought you into the land. I brought you out of Egypt. I brought you into the land that I swore to your fathers. He said, I'll never break my covenant with you. You shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of the land. You will break down their altars. He says, don't you remember? I'm the one who did all these things. And what I asked of you was to make no covenant with them. You, you can't be married to me and married to sin. You can't serve me and serve money. You can't serve me and serve idols. He says, I want you to break down their altars. Joshua had commanded them when they go into the land, be careful to remove all of the inhabitants, to wipe them out completely, to take down all their idols, to take down all their altars. All throughout the Pentateuch in, in Exodus 23, 32. We're not going to have time to go through these. Exodus 23, 32. God talks about making no covenant with them. In Exodus 34, 12, he says, take care. Don't make a covenant with them. They're going to become a snare to you. Numbers 33, 52, he says, drive out all the inhabitants of the land. Deuteronomy 7, 2, it says, when the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, you must devote them completely to destruction. Make no covenant with them. Maybe the Israelites thought God will understand. It's too hard. You ever feel like that? God, I'll understand. It's too hard. Maybe they thought his, his commands were too difficult. They wouldn't want them to fight too hard. These enemies, after all, had, had iron chariots. and Maybe they, they wouldn't, God wouldn't mind a little compromise, a little tolerating of idolatry and evil in their midst. After all, God wants to be comfortable and not take too many risks, right? The problem is that it, it doesn't say that they ask God for his help or even that they asked him for his perspective when they encounter difficulties. And so the angel of the Lord goes up and he recounts what he did. And, and he says, I told you you should make no covenant with inhabitants of the land. And covenant means an agreement. And that's exactly what they did. They agreed to, with a spy, they agreed to keep the people in the land. They agreed to let them live there. They agreed to keep them as slaves. They agreed to be peaceful with their enemies. Sometimes we can do that too. We can make peace with the enemies in our lives. And he says, but you've not obeyed my voice in verse 3. And he says, what is this you've done? And there's consequences. He says, see now, I won't drive out them out before you, but they'll become thorns in your side. And by the way, thorn is this, this kind of nagging thing, this irritant, this constant, painful irritant, hard to get out. He says, there'll be a thorn in your side. There'll be a snare or like a trap. You're going to get caught. Since you embrace God's enemies, God says, I'm giving you over to your enemies. 
It's kind of what it says in Romans 1. When the people exchanged worshiping God and instead they worshiped the created order, God gave them over to the very sins that they wanted. And they did that for a little while and then, and then God corrects them. Verse four, and then it says, as soon as the people lift up their voices and wept, and you think, wow, they're crying out to God. They're grieving, they're weeping. It says they sacrificed the Lord, but it ended there. It ended with mere religious observance, and God wants more than mere religious observance. Later on, you read through the book of Samuel, and in 1 Samuel 15, um, Samuel corrects them. And by the way, he might have been the author of the book of Judges. We're not entirely sure, but it would at least be the same kind of message that the prophet Samuel had. 1 Samuel 15, 22 says, Then Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. It's better than mere religious formality. And to listen is better than the fat of rams. And Paul said something similar about Sorrow without repentance. In 2 Corinthians 7, he says, As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. Being grieved is good, but being grieved into repenting is what God's after. He says, For you felt a godly grief that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief, it just produces death. And that's what we see in the book of Judges, they, they didn't have a godly grief that led to repentance. They had a worldly grief that it, it led to death. And these cycles, I was reminded of this old Keith Green song. He was a guy who used to sing back in the 70s and 80s, and probably hardly anybody here except for Roger Easton has heard of them. So Roger, uh, you and I can listen to Keith Green later. And he says, to obey is better than sacrifice. I want more than Sundays and Wednesday nights. What are you saying? I, just don't, I don't want your perfunctory worship. I don't want you just coming on Sunday morning. I don't want you just coming on Wednesday nights for care group, Bible study, whatever. I, I, what, did, what did Jesus say? He says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. God takes our obedience seriously. But the people are never really holy. They never really obey. And it's funny how it starts with this promise that he says, I've given Judah the land, but yet we never see Judah take possession. We never see Judah bring the people into the true promised land. But thanks be to God that we don't read Judges without the New Testament. You see, there's one from the tribe of Judah who fulfilled completely all of God's commandments. There's one from the tribe of Judah who God says, I've given it into his hand. And Jesus has possessed the land. Jesus has gone in. He's conquered every enemy. He's conquered every evil. He has conquered every evil power and put it under his feet. He has completely obeyed in every way like we could not. He was completely faithful in every way. He completely worshiped God from the heart and, and never gave in to any idols. Jesus was the true leader from Judah, our faithful deliverer. Judges is meant to show us our need for him, to show us a need for a faithful deliverer who will lead us into faithfulness. 
You see, the only way that you can, you can keep God's laws, because by the way, he still requires complete obedience, complete perfection, but here's the thing, you can never do it. God's people were never faithful completely. But in Christ, he counts us as completely faithful, as completely obedient. And so now because of Christ, we actually have hope that we, we don't just to be sorry, we can repent, we can change, we can turn, we can obey him, we can love him. And by the way, loving him by obeying him as Jesus commanded is possible as we put our faith, our trust in Jesus' perfect obedience. And then we say, because Jesus, you obey perfectly, now I have your spirit within me. The same spirit that actually filled each of the judges and filled Jesus. And now, Jesus, I, I need you to lead me. So the appropriate place for us to end today would be say, Jesus, would you show me my need? Would you show me, Lord, your faithfulness? Would you show me, God, where I've been faithless? Not, not to lead us to condemnation. Not because God wants to punish us, but then to say, God, thank you that all these areas you're showing me of my faithlessness, thank you that your son Jesus has been completely faithful in all those ways. That he's died for all my faithlessness. And in response, God, would you enable me now to do what you've already given? You've already given me power over sin. You've already given me the ability to say no to sin, to live for you, to be righteous and holy in your sight. So Lord, would you do that? The book of Judges ends saying, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. May we turn from that and then not be said of us. May we see that we have a faithful, a faithful deliverer who, who leads us perfectly, who has already made a way, who's already perfectly fulfilled, who has already done everything right so that now we can obey God from the heart. May we follow our faithful deliverer into faithfulness. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word, Lord. We look forward to learning from you, from your word, from your book. God, would you help us respond in faith to you and trust in your son anew. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thanks for being with us today. Hopefully, if